Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent, Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent, and we have a guest from Atlantic Equities, that's Chris Wheeler. We are also joined from the US by Alistair Gray, who's been talking to Sally Krawcheck from Elevest. This week, we'll be discussing the latest disasters at Deutsche Bank, a look at succession at HSBC and other banks around the world, and finally, that view from the US and why women need their own investment platform. First, though, to Deutsche Bank. It's been a hairy couple of days in the markets for Deutsche, Laura. You've been looking in some detail at what's been going wrong. It's a kind of nasty memories of earlier parts of this year when January, February time, there was a lot of nervousness in the market. I think the shares have lost another, what, 7 or 8%, even more maybe over the past couple of days. Yeah, it's been a really brutal run on the stock market for Deutsche. They were down 7.5% yesterday. We're now down about 3% and that's just halfway through Tuesday. So really they're getting battered on the equities market. The debt market is now taking some of the pressure as well. In terms of the key drivers behind this, there was a report a few weeks ago saying that the authorities in the US had asked for a $14 billion fine from Deutsche. That was very much the early ask. Deutsche has been saying that they aren't going to pay anything like that, but still, that was a very frightening number. This was for the mortgage-backed securities um, uh, penalty. Yeah, and then there was also an article at the weekend saying that basically Deutsche Bank CEO had been told by the German authorities that they can't intervene and they won't bail out the bank. Now, Deutsche was also in the news yesterday and they said that they hadn't asked for any help from the state, that they don't need any help from the state. The real problem is that people just don't seem to believe it. I mean, even after the bank came out with a very unequivocal statement on it, shares then continue to fall. So there is a real confidence issue here. Yeah, it seems as if, Chris, just to bring you in here, Deutsche is being pretty battered. There's a deliberate shorting strategy going on. Obviously, quite a few hedge funds seem to be taking a punt against Deutsche because simply everyone knows that they're going to have to raise capital at some point and that's going to be hugely dilutive. And until they do, which John Cryan, the chief executive, is trying to hold off from doing before they have to pay these settlement penalties because he doesn't want to have a target on his back, so he says, around you know how much the authorities can go after. But as long as that goes on, the market's going to continue to punish the bank, isn't it? Yes, it's a very, very difficult situation because John's laid out a strategy to try and get the bank back onto an even keel in terms of capital leverage, the platform, making sure that's much more efficient, taking costs out the business. But the problem is, while all this noise is around him, particularly now around this $14 the difficulty is actually making sure you don't start to shed revenues. You may have seen they dropped out of the top five banks for the first time since um, I think uh, one of the companies who keeps these records had put together the overall investment banking fee pot and trading fee pot. And now five US banks lead the way. Deutsche, I think, fell down to number six. So the worry is that when John comes out of this, as hopefully Deutsche and he will, they actually have a viable business that can return to some kind of normality and also produce decent returns. 
And what about that capital issue? Because we've seen a share price now fall to such a level, it's barely worth 20% of its net book value in terms of the price to book. The dilution, as and when they come to raise capital, is going to be horrendous, isn't it? Well, it is. And I think one of the problems is Deutsche has been in denial on capital since early 2010 when it raised some money to buy Postbank and everybody thought it should raise more to sort of boost its ratio rather than just buy Postbank. They subsequently had two pretty big share issues, one of them a rights issue since then. But you know, every time they were denying they needed the capital, we've now got to the situation where it seems inevitable. But again, as you just touched on, John has got the problem of how much do I raise? And the dilution could be absolutely monstrous with the shares at this particular price. So you know, he's got a lot of shareholders who've come in quite recently, some core shareholders, particularly in the Middle East, who perhaps are going to have something to say about that. And he's playing a massive game of chicken, basically. Yes, he is. And that's not John's style at all. I mean, I always say he's, he's a classic Wahlberg banker. You know, he was trained to be very precise, low-key, get the job done for the client, always under-promise and over-deliver. And that's what John's been trying to do. But he's in a situation I don't think even he's been in before as a fig banker at Wahlberg. Final word, can it end happily? I mean, is he going to get through this? I think he has to get through this because at the end of the day, this is so important to Germany. You know, all the talk about Berlin not standing behind Deutsche Bank is nonsense because it's not just important for the global markets, because this is much more important than the Lehman Brothers situation. Actually, it's very important for Germany. And so I think, you know, there's no doubt it will end with some kind of solution. How that works out within the EU framework, because that's a difficult one, we'll see. But yes, it will survive. One to watch. Thank you very much. Let's move on to our second story of the day. Martin, this is picking up on something you were writing about on HSBC. What's happened is HSBC has hired the city headhunters, Russell Reynolds, to look for future chief executives, but not candidates to replace the current chief executive, Stuart Gulliver. Their mandate is to look further ahead and examine the internal roster of up-and-coming executives inside HSBC and who could replace the successor to Stuart Gulliver. So looking, I guess, five years out at the strength of their bench and how those people are developing and how they compare, crucially, to the best bankers outside HSBC. That is thinking ahead. It rather strikes a different tone from 2010 when I remember covering the rather disastrous succession that took place then, which was when Stuart Gulliver was finally appointed, but not before there'd been a huge, messy row on the board, um, various people resigning in a huff. They've learned their lesson, seemingly. Yeah, well, you covered that. So I think broke quite a few stories about uh, the, the messiness that probably only added to the messiness. But the headhunter, uh, Russell Rounds, I spoke to one of their leading headhunters in the financial services practice, D. Simons, who said, actually, financial services has not been the gold standard in respect of succession planning. And now that it is such a big focus of boards, but also of regulators, regulators are forcing banks, because they've been so messy in the past at planning these things, to really take this seriously. And I think HSBC is trying to clean up their act. However, there continues to be great speculation over the next couple of years at HSBC, who's going to be the next chief executive? Because the widely held favourite to be chairman is Henri de Castre, the former chief executive of French insurance company AXA, who is a non-executive director already on the board and is widely expected to take over from Douglas Flint. But Stuart Gulliver is expected to go in a couple of years. That's roughly the timetable. They haven't given a specific date when he will go. 
And the top inside name to replace him is John Flint, no relation, who is head of their retail banking wealth management business. Now, he ticks all the boxes in terms of qualifications for the job. But the question is, does he have the charisma and will he be someone who will you know, be convincing for Mr. De Castro should he take over as chairman? And will they look outside? Because this is all quite revolutionary for HSBC, which has never appointed an external chairman or an external chief executive. They've always appointed the top jobs internally. So to appoint Mr. De Castro as chairman is a bit of a culture shock. People inside the bank think it's you know pretty unlikely they will also appoint an external chief executive. So it'll be very interesting to watch this for the next year or two. Now, Emma, HSBC is not the only bank that's been thinking about succession, or at least whether investors have been concerned about succession issues. We wrote the other day about Lloyd's and investors' kind of views on succession planning there. Yes, so this issue has really come to the fore at Lloyd's over the past couple of weeks following allegations surrounding Antonio Horta Osorio's private life that emerged earlier in August. A number of top shareholders are now questioning whether there is key man risk, so to speak, and are highlighting the lack of obvious internal successes. So Richard Buxton, who has long invested in the stock, pointed to the fact that they need to make a priority of drawing up a list of potential successes and points out to an obvious lack of internal candidates. A couple of other top shareholders are also placing pressure on the bank to draw up external successes. Now, we should say that there seems to be no question about Mr. Horta Osorio's keenness to stay on and the board's keenness for him to stay on. And in fact, investors like him very much as well in many ways. But this whole issue has made people think, actually, that this is a one-man show in many ways. There are obviously other executives who are good at their jobs, but no one who really smacks of being a future chief executive. Exactly. So Mr. Horto Osorio recently reaffirmed his commitment to leading the bank. However, there are no obvious internal candidates. So previously, Alison Britton, who headed up the retail division, was considered a potential successor, but then left for Whitbread last year. There's Andrew Bester, who heads up the commercial bank, and equally George Colmer, who's a financial director. But shareholders have questioned the viability of perhaps both of them as stepping up to the helm. It sounds like Lord Blackwell should have engaged Russell Reynolds as HSBC did, Martin. And just to circle back between Lloyds and HSBC, Antonio Horto Rosario had been rumoured to be a potential external candidate as the next chief executive of HSBC. However, most investors think that the unfortunate events of the summer in his personal life mean he's more likely to stay at Lloyds now and pretty much rule him out from being a candidate for HSBC. Another one to watch. Let's go for our third segment to the US, where Alistair Gray has been talking to Sally Krawcheck, the former Merrill Lynch executive, who now heads Elevest, a platform for women to invest. And he started by asking her why women need this kind of platform. Why do they need it? We should just keep doing what we're doing now, which is have an industry that is mostly men. So the financial advisors who used to work for me were 85, 87% men. The industry is very male. It has a lot of war and sports analogies. Outperform, beat the market, pick the winner. All of the television around investing is like watching sports television, and the symbol for the industry is a bull. And so women tell us that they do not feel like the industry speaks to them. So darn those women. We should not, therefore, have a business that enables them to invest. We should just let those darn women continue to suffer from the gender investing gap, which costs them 
Some women tens of thousands, many women hundreds of thousands, some women millions of dollars over the course of their careers, and just darn them. I detect <laughs> a, a note of sarcasm. I don't know. With sarcasm, I just try to be gently humorous about it. The reason that we should have it is because we have a gender investing gap. Women do not invest to the same extent that men do. I mentioned how much it can cost them. Even if you're a man and you're thinking, I don't really care about this. Well, hold on a second. In addition to giving women the opportunity to earn more, which is good for them, it's good for their families. It's good for the markets. Women control $5 trillion of investable assets in the United States alone. Wouldn't it be nice to have some portion of that in the markets to help businesses grow. It's good for the economy. It's good for society. What does the evidence show about the investment products that women buy? Are they any more or less risk averse than, than men? Well, that's the other myth around women, that women are risk averse, that somehow the very fact of our different body parts you know, keeps us from investing, that we're risk averse. Women are risk aware. What women tell us they want to understand is what is the risk, not standard deviation, but what is my downside? What we see is that when men receive jargon from the industry, they don't understand it. Women don't understand it. The men will invest through it and the women will try to understand it. And so the women will go home and every woman I know has printed out all kinds of material on investing and says she's gonna read it, but she's got a job, she's got kids, she's got a carpool, she's got a life, she's got charity she's working for. And so she puts off investing until she feels like she understands it. So what we're trying to do at Elevest is we recognize this and we're trying to pull away the jargon in part and we're trying to put in her control only the things she can control. And you know, trying to talk at her about standard deviation is something that keeps her from investing, not helps her invest. And so who's the target consumer of your platform? For Elevest, you know, we're really talking to professional women and I think we're the only ones who are out there doing that. So we're talking to women about not just investing and, and how she should invest again, given the fact she lives longer and has a different salary peak, but we're talking about topics to her, such as the cost of a career break. I mean, this is really important. If you're a woman making $85,000 a year and you want to take a two-year career break, you probably think that costs you $170,000. That actually costs you $1.7 million dollars. Because when you come back, on average, you take a double-digit pay cut and all your raises come off of that level. You're not contributing to Social Security in those years. You're not contributing to your 401k. So we're the ones, I think, the only ones I know who are having these real conversations with women about money. So our target is we're talking to professional women. We're talking to all women. And those who should be, I think, investing are any women who've paid off their high interest rate debt. By the way, we do take the guys as well. What portion of your customers are men? It's a, probably a low double-digit percent, but here's what we do. We make them die sooner, and we have them earn more. So they actually reach their goals faster than women do overall. So there's still a shortage of women on Wall Street, to put it mildly, in senior positions. What do you think needs to be done to change that? Well, I think these things are not a coincidence at all. The fact that there are... Financial advisors are 85 to 87% male, that we have an industry that is so that the majority of the population is male and it serves males better. So part of a solution could be to bring in more female financial advisors. 
The challenge is the in, it's a long-term solution. The industry has tried to do it for forever. The industry has made very little progress and no lasting progress in as long as we can remember. I chose to address this issue through Elevest, which is a digital investment platform, because this is where the world is going. So banking misbehavior is back in the headlines recently with this scandal at Wells Fargo. Do you think that a lack of diversity, and specifically gender diversity at a high level in the industry is contributing to these scandals? So I'll say a couple of things. I'll say you get what you pay for. I saw back in the day when I was running the research business for Sanford Bernstein and later for Smith Barney, that for the industry, if they were paying research analysts to do investment banking business, they were going to do investment banking business. As soon as I was brought over to run Smith Barney for City and we started to pay the research analysts for their stock recommendations, guess what? They got better. Funny, huh? So people will do what you motivate and incentivize them for. In terms of your topic about more women, Look, I've done a lot of research about the power of diversity in leadership teams. I believe in it very strongly, that greater diversity is the only metric I've been able to find that indicates in any way the quality of a leadership team. And you and I can see this, having people with different backgrounds, different perspectives, different insights, different ways of approaching things, yes, different genders, yes, different skin colors, that that makes a management team smarter. The research, I believe, is clear. Higher returns on equity, lower risk, greater innovation, greater client focus, greater employee engagement. And so, you know, do those things sound like they would have been better for the industry than the financial crisis we had? Yeah. All right, Sally Crotchet, thanks so much for joining us. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin, Laura and Emma here in the studio, Chris Wheeler from Atlantic Equities, and also Alistair and his guest, Sally Krawcheck. Also, thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon and Amy Keane. Until next week, goodbye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.